You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Good evening and welcome everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for Friday the 1st of October 2021. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, tonight's program, again, this this is not available as of yet until we get it sorted. The streaming, the live streaming on Tuesdays, that's the normal time which goes up. Um, probably another week or two. A few days ago, um, the reason why this program didn't go from Tuesday from Monday to Wednesday was at uh, the minister's conference for our denomination, which was a wonderful blessing. And yesterday I was just way too tired to do this program, so um, ask for your prayers on that. Today we're going to be covering questions in the larger catechism relating to Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And we may get into uh, the questions in the larger catechism dealing with his humiliation and his state of exaltation. So that's the plan for this this program. And um, just also to give you a bit of update on where I am with getting back to streaming, I think it's possible. I have a spare laptop, and I think I'll be able to stream through that. And, um, you know, from what I know, I think the OBS software that I currently use for streaming, it's a free software. It's very good. And I, from what I've understood from the tiny bit of research I've been able to do over the last few weeks, is that it is better on the PC. And apparently there's no competition. So I use Mac, and I'm going to find a way that um, I'll be just, I'll be using two computers and finding a way of splitting the load, and hopefully that will work. And if it doesn't work, well, <laughs> we'll see. We're, I, I think possibly I'm going to, there would probably be a program, my guess, would be Tuesday week. That would be being realistic. Um, I have not had any time really to do testing, but I am, the good, good thing is, and this is the good thing, uh, I think we should be able to get back to streaming programs in the near future without having to spend any money because over the last couple of years, um, for years, like probably between maybe 2013, 2014, right up until 2018, the quality of the program, at least in my mind, has improved quite a bit. Um, but since then, college, you know, I'm training for the ministry. I'm currently a, a licentiate of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Ireland. And so I haven't been really able to invest anything in Megiddo Radio. And um, also have to figure out how th this ministry will go forward. Um, it's quite possible that it will just be podcasts only. Currently, at the current time, I don't really know if Megiddo Films will continue. I don't think it will. But who knows? Who knows? Um, I'm going to think about it, pray about it, and um, like... I don't know if those those websites will stay up, um, and it might just be bare bones, bare minimum. One of the reasons is for this. I look. I got saved years ago through the internet, so I I spent a lot of time doing things through the internet, and I do think it is good to have a presence on the internet. And I I think a lot of churches have seen some of the positive aspects of the internet over the last eighteen months. Um, but I think there's also been a over Maybe overlines is a wrong word, but maybe kind of a substituting for the actual gathering together of the church has been a worrying aspect over the last 18 months. However, at the same time, sometimes putting out messages and doing different things will encourage unbelievers maybe to stumble upon a sermon or will watch your entire service. And then through that, will 
eventually come and maybe come to faith through that and all that. Again, as I say, as I say, as a person who, back in 2009 who had no contact with Christians, got saved through the internet, I'm very, very pro that. But at the same time, I worry about the over-reliance on these means. You cannot depend on me for your spiritual feeding or any other podcast or any other. It's great if you, if I'm a, hopefully I'm, I'm, hopefully I'm a benefit and a help, but you need, if you're, hopefully first you're a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, I pray that you would turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and see that you're in need of salvation. But if you're a Christian, you need to be under the, the guidance and the shepherding influence, and you need to be in a church growing under a, a number of elders and a number of you know, shepherds, under shepherds of the Lord, and to be taught from the word of God. And you need to be involved, involved in your own local church, a church that is reasonably close to you, one that you can be really involved in, be involved in people's lives. So um, I guess all that to say is one of the reasons why I have put less and less money and probably time into Megiddo Media um, because where the the most important thing is local church. The, the hits may be online, but you can't shepherd people through a podcast. I cannot be what your minister is, and nor should I be. Hopefully this will be a nice supplement to your spiritual diet as we go through the catechism, the larger catechism by God's grace. Um, you know, in the same way that you take fish oils and omega-3 and vitamins, that's the way you should look at this program. And But don't ever make this a substitute for the local body. And that's where your time, your labor... And look, if you want to give to me, get a media and all that, there are, there are website costs and all that. But I think, quite frankly, over... I do think the more and more I think about it, there will be a scaling down more and more. Films, I don't know how they will continue in the future. Um, I That's something that's probably going to be wrapped up and the websites might not exist anymore, um, probably in their future. Um, I think that the only thing that might exist in the near future is Megiddo Radio and the Megiddo Review. I'm going to... I do have plans to do devotional blogs Vlogs, not blogs, yeah, blogs. <laughs> um, in the near future, because I, I think that can be helpful. Hopefully, that can be helpful to people. Short articles, and I, I plan to get. I have a lot of things, a lot of material do, of a devotional nature. I, I would have covered a lot more stuff in the media and things like that, but this will be more of a devotional nature, taking an aspect of the Word of God and expanding upon it. So all that to say, let's get into our program. And if you've got any questions of what I've just mentioned, Megiddo Radio at gmail.com. That's M-E-G-I-D-D-O radio at gmail.com. So we are in the format of this, this podcast and probably the next podcast is going to be, I'm not, it's not going to be quite the same as the light program because it just, you know, it, it's just, it's different. Once we get back to the light programs, I we will, by God's grace, go back to doing the Psalms and a few other things. Um, if you want to listen to the Psalms, which you should, and by God's grace sing, uh, you can look up Connor Quigley Psalms if you go into soundcloud.com, or you can also go to the website, thepsalmssung.org. So some of those aspects, it's going to be just a bit shaved down and... Um, Possibly this program will not be quite an hour, but we'll see how we go. Qu starting with question 43 of the larger catechism. So if you have it in front of you, no, you might not own a copy. Um, this has been published by the Free Presbyterian uh, Church. That's the church in Scotland, not the church in Ulster. Free Presbyterian Publications. Also, Banner published a very nice copy as well, Banner of Truth. 
Um, but you can also find this online. So if you just Google the larger catechism, and don't be afraid. If you don't understand, what's the larger catechism? I don't know anything about catechisms. We're just going to talk about Jesus. Okay? We're going to talk about Jesus for the next 45 minutes. However long this the segment lasts. And I hope, by God's grace, it shows you how there's nothing to be scared of when it comes to the Westminster larger catechism or shorter catechism. These are to help you to understand the truth better, the gospel better, Jesus Christ better, God the Father better, the Holy Spirit better. No, they do not replace the the word of God. They don't come in place of the word of God, but they are a wonderful help to help us understand the scriptures. You know, people people asked I used to, people used to ask me years ago, what's a good book if you're just coming new to either the Reformed faith or Christianity in general? Get a shorter catechism. Now, at the beginning, you don't have to, I don't know how much the, the copy from the Free Presbyterian publications cost, I think maybe it's like 10, 15 quid, something like that, um, in and around there. But you can just print this offline. You know, this I'm sure there's a just get a PDF and print off a couple of pages from some website. There's plenty of websites out there that have the Westminster Confession of Faith on there. Copy and paste, put in a word file. There's no copyright in this because this is back. This this confession was done back in the 17th century. So don't be afraid of it. Read it, and I hope by God's grace we see that this is for everybody. These are truths that everybody, every Christian should know, and everybody should know too. So question 43 in the larger catechism reads as follows. How doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? Now, the older language, how does, how does. So there's not, <laughs> there's not much in the way of to learn with it. How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Another way to say that is how is Christ viewed as a prophet by the scriptures? How does he... How does he do his, how is that role seen? Okay. The answer, Christ executeth, to execute is just to do it. The office of a prophet in his revealing to the church in all ages by his spirit and word in diverse ways of administration the whole will of God in all things concerning their edification and salvation. Okay, don't worry if you don't understand all that. We'll, we'll go through it slowly, and hopefully we'll all understand it together at the end of this answer. So the first part of question 43 is this. Christ executed the office of a prophet. And we ask how? In his revealing to the church. So what does a prophet do? A prophet, if you go back to the Old Testament, look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea, anybody else, they are revealing truth. They are, not in the same with Christ, because Christ is the truth, the way and the light, but they are setting forth, they are preachers, they are showing and pointing towards the truth. They are giving divinely authored messages to God's people, or in terms of Nahum, in terms of um, I'm trying to remember Jonah to foreign lands, you know, like Nahum was going to Nineveh, and also you have the same thing with Jonah, but generally to God's people who were wayward. How is Christ a prophet? And he's not only the a prophet, he's the prophet prophesied in the Old Testament. Go right back to Moses was a prophet. And there would come a prophet who would be holy and sinless. He would be the, the truth. And he executes, he does, he performs this office as a prophet in revealing to the church in all ages how 
in his spirit and words. So by his spirit, the Holy Spirit, John 14 to John 16, these chapters, um, he will go and he will send another helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. He will send another who is also God, the Holy Spirit, by his spirit and word, the word of God. This is how he reveals to the church in all ages, in diverse ways of administration, in diverse ways of administration. Diverse just means various, various ways of administering this. There's different ways. It can be through word, sacrament. We know what the sacraments by because of the word, we know of the bread and the cup in the Lord's Supper because of the word of God. And because we also have to be instructed by the Spirit in this revealing. And Christ continues to execute this office of prophet today. And what does he reveal in all ages to the church? The whole will of God. The whole will of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for instruction, righteousness of the man of God, may be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. Scripture is sufficient. The whole will of God. In all things concerning, it says here in this answer, concerning their edification and salvation. Concerning their edification and salvation. Everything that is needed for their edification is there, is needed. That is needed is then the word and we also, again, need the Spirit of God. Otherwise, we are blind to these truths. And salvation. Everything needed for salvation, what we need to believe, the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting on Him and Him alone, is revealed in the, the Word of the living God. So that's how, we execute, that's how He performs this office of a prophet. You might have heard before, Jesus Christ is a prophet a priest, and a king. Maybe you haven't heard that before, but the scriptures reveal he is a prophet, a priest, and a king. So one scripture, John 1.18, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So that's the role of the prophet. A prophet. He is the prophet. The greatest preacher, the greatest prophet to ever walk the face of the earth. The prophet. The prophet they were all waiting for. But they weren't just waiting for the prophet. There's also one who would come and die for the nation. Question 44. How doth, how does, again, don't let the slightly antiquated language of the, the Westminster Confession put you off. How does, or how doth, Christ execute the office of a priest? The answer, Christ executeth the, the office of a priest in his once offering himself a sacrifice without spot to God to be a reconciliation for the sins of his people and in making continual intercession for them. Now, so let's go through this one by one. Question 44 of the larger catechism. <clears throat> Christ executed the office of a priest. How? In his once offering himself a sacrifice without spot to God. In the Old Testament, if you remember, but if you read it, you will see that the priests, the high priests, they offered a sacrifice for sin, and they would have to do it over and over again. Jesus Christ, because he is the perfect sinless offering did it once and then justice was satisfied in him 
because of that offering of himself, bearing the wrath of God, taking the punishment due to the to his people, chosen before the foundation of the world, and then, and it's important, without spot before God, without spot, a an offering without blemish. And this is all foreshadowed, all foretold in the Old Testament. This is why there were animals, animal sacrifices, without any blemish to point towards the Lamb of God who would come and be without any moral blemish. There was always a teaching function in the ceremony law, and the ceremony law in the Old Testament setting forth the gospel to God's people at that time. Imagine, if you will, that the church is like a child at this point, and what do you show a child? A picture book to help them to understand things. You know, if you go to school, you're quite young, you're under the age of seven or whatever, you're going to see a lot of pictures. Well, the, the Old Testament is filled with pictures, especially the Pentateuch. And the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, these books are filled with pictures to help us to understand the gospel, the need for a substitute, the need for another to die in the place of sinners. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the priest, but he offers up himself, different to the priests before. They offered up another, but he offers up himself to be a reconciliation. This makes reconciliation. And before, there's enmity between the two parties. There's hostility. There's animosity between two parties between the sinner and God. And what happens, you know, if you have friends and they're not talking? What, what needs to happen? There needs to be reconciliation. Maybe somebody needs to say sorry, maybe we need to start talking again, whatever the case. The offended party needs to forgive the other person. The thing is, with God, he is sinless. He is just, he is holy and righteous. And he's willing to receive all those who will come to him by faith and by faith alone. But man, unless he has been given a new nature, will not come to this God. Jesus Christ is the only way to be reconciled because there needs to be an atoning for sin. Jesus Christ is the propitiation. He is the one who turns away wrath because he bore wrath in the place of sinners for the sins of his people. Not for everybody, for the sins of his people. If the sins of everybody had been satisfied, no one would go to hell because that is the power of his priestly office. What did Jesus say in his high priestly prayer in John 17? I, I pray not for the world. What is it in John 17 verse 9 off the top of my head there? I pray not for the world, but I, I, pray, I pray for those whom thou hast given me. to be a reconciliation for the sins of his people. Question 44. And in making continual, this is the aspect that still continues to this day. He has already made reconciliation. He is, he, he is, he is satisfied justice. That is finished. Paid in full. But he continues in his office of priest today in making continual reconciliation, intercession, sorry, intercession, intercession for them so that when we can now go bef boldly before the throne of God because of this truth because Jesus Christ the righteous one our righteous advocate the one whom God the father spoke of God the son this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased that you, you can come before the throne of grace 
through Christ and through Christ alone. That is why when we pray, we say, Dear Father, and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ because we can't come in our own name. We must come in the name of Jesus Christ. And he, he ever liveth to make intercession. He intercedes in our behalf. So, remember this, friends. The, your, your prayers before God in Christ are pleasing before him. They're not tainted by sin. Now, this does not mean we're casual and everything else. But because it is in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, otherwise they wouldn't be accepted. Otherwise, they'd be, they would be bring more and more wrath upon us because we're sinners. We are sinful creatures. But the acceptance of our prayers before God is in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that should encourage us, brothers and sisters, to pray more because of the one who intercedes for us and because he is ever our high priest. The high priest was done away with. But in one, in one sense... But in another sense, it continues forever in the Lord Jesus Christ. We notice in the book of Hebrews. We have something better, far better than what they even had in the previous administration in Judah, in Israel. Okay, question 45. Let's look at this question. How doth Christ execute the office of a king? So he's not just a prophet. He is not just a priest, although that is amazing. In and of itself, prophet, great privilege. A priest and a king. And if you remember... Where, what line did the king come from of the tribes of Israel, Judah? The priests came from the Levites and, and the house of Aaron. In one man, you have a combination of this office. You don't have a combination in before the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one man who fulfills this role. He is the king. He is the high priest. And he is the prophet. Answer says here in the larger catechism, question 45. Christ executeth the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself. Just think about that. The office of a king in calling out of, of the world a people to himself. Because he has that authority. I just stagger at that. The power and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just going to start. I'm just going to start that answer again. Christ executeth the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself and giving them officers, laws, censures by which he visibly governs them in bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience and correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies, and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good. And also, in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. So 
So just to make a, a few brief comments on each part of this. First of all, he calls out a people for himself. It is a command. There's a sense in which it's, yes, the gospel is an invitation. Come. But it's also a command. He is commanding. He gave these people, these called out ones, officers. Ephesians 4.11, and gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And this is for their good. This is overseers overseeing the people in the work of the kingdom of God. Leadership is for the benefit and blessing of the church. It is not for people to have a soapbox. It is for the blessing and edification and the feeding of God's people. It is to shepherd them. It is to bless. It is to instruct. It is to encourage. You also get laws, censures, so to be laws. We can, we understand laws and censures. Um, rebukes by which he visibly governs them. He is a king and a king brings forth his decree. He is powerful in salvation. If he didn't have this authority and power, he would have no hope. In bestowing saving grace upon his elect, it says. Rewarding and just, you know, saving grace is given to the elect and the elect only. Anyone who is given saving grace will come to Christ. Rewarding their obedience. And again, this rewarding of the obedience is in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way our works and our greatest deeds are but filthy rags are accepted is through Christ. Because unless it was through Christ, nothing we do would be acceptable because we are sinners. We are sinners even after a conversion. And correcting them for their sins, it says in this, in this answer, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings. So, and this is all for, and it says later, for our good. We need to be corrected. As children need to be corrected in the home, so also we as the children of God need to be corrected to help us to grow. Helping us, supporting us under the temptations and also in sufferings that we, we suffer in this world. Restraining and overcoming all their enemies. He is the one who subdues. It is the seed of the woman that will have victory over the seed of the serpent. And powerfully ordering all things for his own glory. And this is why he does it. Why does he do it? Various different things for his own glory. And we must start off with that. Sola de glory. To God alone be the glory. And their good. So both, it's both for the glory of God alone and for the good of his people because he loves his people and he is glorified. He is glorified in the salvation. This is the part of the high priestly prayer, actually, at the start of John 17. He is glorified in the salvation of his people. Read the first five verses in John 17. And there is Jesus Christ, God the Father, the Holy Spirit. They are glorified. The triune God is glorified in the salvation of sinners. That they are that Christ is made known. That they may know him. for his own glory and their own good, and also in taking vengeance on the rest. <coughs> God is 
powerful. He is righteous. And he must punish sin. His character, his honor, and his glory is at stake. Who know not God, these are people who he takes vengeance upon. And it's not like that, no, not, this is kind of, no, not God in a saving sense. They haven't trusted in Jesus Christ and obey not the gospel. They reject the gospel. This isn't saying the people are saved by, quote unquote, obeying the gospel or something like that. But those who reject the gospel are those who have never trusted in Jesus Christ. It's all for his glory and for his good. All things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. So whenever difficult times come, realize that it comes according, no matter how difficult, according to the good, pleasure, the holy, wise, and just decree of God. The, the, the good, you know, an example could be like the the intention and the, of Joseph's brothers to send Joseph into Egypt and you know, into slavery was evil. But God was the one also. God was the one ultimately who sent Joseph into Egypt. And he, he did it for good, holy, and righteous reasons. To save much people alive. And Joseph, to go through that, but he also, at the end of Genesis, we see he saw the Lord's hand. In Philippians chapter 1, we see how Paul sees that in his chains, God is glorified. So in our sufferings, all these things are for our good. We may not see how that is the case, but by faith, we need to realize that. And at the same time, there's good, holy, and righteous reasons for that. We, need, we really need to remember that, brethren, because otherwise we won't be able to deal with life's challenges if we realize that I am in this situation, this horrible situation, Maybe people have done me wrong. Some people have done me evil and have sinned against me. But above all that, more powerful than any of these other forces that have got me into this difficult situation is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And remind we need to remind ourselves at those times that I am here because God wants me here for a holy, righteous reason that I may see this side of eternity and I may not see this side of eternity. But God knows. And may we be content that God would be glorified in all these things. Now, am I saying that this is easy? No. But often we, we were brought through sufferings that it would take our eyes off this world. We, the, the, the glimmer and the attraction of this world would fade. That worldly recognition and all these things would be less and less important to us. And that Christ would be more and more glorious, beautiful to behold. And that by itself is a good, holy, and righteous reason to rejoice even in suffering, even in difficulties. And speaking of suffering, who suffered more? You, me, or the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it's clearly the Lord Jesus Christ. He suffered more than any of us could ever imagine. 
And that brings us on to question 46. What was the estate of Christ's humiliation? The estate, answer, the estate of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein he, for our sakes, emptying himself of his glory, took upon him the form of a servant in his conception, birth, death, life, life, death, and after his death until his resurrection. So humiliation brought into that lowest state. We've got to be careful with that phrase, emptying himself. It doesn't mean that he ceased to be glorious. He was always glorious. He, if you want to think of Christ is always glorious, but in his manifestation of his glory, in his revealing of his glory, that is how he, as it says, made himself of no reputation. So I just want to quote here from Johannes G. Voss, or J.G. Voss, on this, when it comes to Christ's empty himself. We'll get into the rest of the question in a second, but I think that's probably the one of the most biggest things to, uh, to look at here. J.G. Voss said the following, Some have held that this expression in the Greek text of Philippians 2.7 means that Christ emptied himself of his deity. According to this interpretation, Christ was divine when he was in heaven, but cast his deity aside and was only a man when he was on earth. However, since many texts in this New Testament teach that Christ was truly and fully God while he was on earth, the above interpretation cannot be correct. The true meaning is that Christ emptied himself of the enjoyment of his divine glory. Taking the form of a servant instead, his nature was still the same, but his position was different. The enjoyment of his divine glory or the outward manifestation of his glory, there's different ways it could be understood like that, but he died. He died. He suffered. This is what we talk about. Because before then, he is in the, the glories of heaven, enjoying the sweet fellowship, that sweet fellowship with God the Father. The estate of Christ's humiliation, the, question, the answer to question 46. <clears throat> was that lowest state, low condition, sorry, wherein he, for our sakes, emptied himself for his glory, I'm sorry, of his glory, took upon him the form of a servant. So, he became man, but always God, true God and true man, not partially man, and partially God, True God and true God, true man. It says in this answer, in his conception. So from conception, and he was miraculously conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. She was a virgin at that point. In his conception, birth, Life took upon himself the form of a servant. Like, you have to remember, this is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he was, he had a very, and I say this reverently, a very ordinary birth. His conception was miraculous. But a very ordinary birth, a very ordinary life in in. In many ways, obviously not in some ways, because he was sinless. The son of David, not ordinary in any sense that way, but true man, true man, suffered that lowest state of entering into the sin-cursed world and living in that, to be born into the sin-cursed world. This is the majestic, glorious king of kings. So this is part of his humiliation, his death. He suffers under this invading enemy, death. 
and he's had victory over that death, and one day, death will be no more at the end of time. But still, he dies. And after his death, it says here in question in, in answer 46, and after his death, he was in the grave for three days. His body. Now, in his deity, he cannot die, but but Jesus died. Until his resurrection. So that humiliation continued until his resurrection. Question 47. How did Christ humble himself in his conception and birth? Christ humbled himself, it says here, in his conception and birth, in that being from all eternity, the Son of God, in the bosom of the Father, he was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man, made of a woman of low estate, and to be born of her with diverse or various circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. So, basically lived, you know, this created world is, it's fallen. And there's suffering and there's various types of various things that people go through. This is the king of glory. Brought to a lower estate. Born of this handmaid, this doule, kind of a female slave almost. And also, various other... He was living in a fairly poor, ordinary home. Obeyed his, his parents perfectly. But lived. And suffered in that way. Having left behind. The glories of heaven. And the enjoyment of heaven. Does that not make us. So thankful. For what the Lord Jesus Christ did. For sinners. Like you and I. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Why? What more could he do for you? You are still. If you are still in your sin. It is because of you. He came into the sin cursed world. He suffered and he died. And. You want none of him. And the problem with the person who doesn't trust in Jesus Christ is they're arrogant. They're foolish. They're full of pride. They don't think that they're sinners. They don't think that they need a savior. And they don't see that God is good. That he is good, not us. Question 48. How did Christ humble himself in his life. Christ humbled himself in his life by subjecting himself to the law. He obeyed the law perfectly, which he perfectly fulfilled, and by conflicting with the indignities of the world, temptations of Satan, and infirmities in the flesh, in his flesh, whether common to the nature of man, or particularly accompanying that his or particularly accompanying that his lowest state. Now, I don't think there's anything too difficult here, but we'll just talk about it briefly. First part, subject himself to the law. He had to obey the law perfectly, and he obeyed the law perfectly in the place of sinners. Submitting to law, so that when... His righteousness become our righteousness. God sees no longer a sinner. For those who are in Christ Jesus, he sees somebody who has obeyed the law, 
who has kept the law, who has kept the Ten Commandments, who has obeyed the law in every point, has not turned from the law, which he perfectly fulfilled, it says. He fulfilled it perfectly. The just shall live by faith, not the morally neutral shall, shall live by faith. The just, the righteous. And by conflicting with the indignities of the world, you know, dealing with the problems of the world, temptations of Satan, tempted by glory, tempted with natural desires, hunger, desire for glory, desire for um, to reveal God, God for who He is, and things like things like this, and infirmities in the in His flesh. For example, you know, common to the nature of man, tiredness, hunger, things like this, or particularly occup accompanying that His lowest state. Again, but He never was tempted in any way to do it a sin nature. Question forty nine. How did Christ humble himself in his death? Christ humbled himself in his death in that having been betrayed by Judas, forsaken by his disciples, scorned and rejected by the world, condemned by Pilate, and tormented by his persecutors, having also conflicted with the terrors of death and the powers of darkness, felt and borne the weight of God's wrath, he laid down his life, an offering for sin, enduring the painful, shameful, and cursed death of the cross. Trying to look here would be a good time. Where would be a good place for... I think I'm going to do one more question. It's going to deal with his humiliation. And we'll finish off there for... For today, and then the next program we do in the Larger Catechism, we'll we'll continue on from question fifty one of the Larger Catechism. But in uh, let's look at this about his death. He he was betrayed by Judas, forsaken by his disciples, scorned and rejected by the world. You know, he came into his own and his own received him not. He suffered in all these ways, and some some of these things we've already commented on, but. Condemned by Pilate and torment, you know, Pilate is a ruler on this earth, but of lower state than the Lord Jesus Christ, and tormented by his persecutors, having also conflicted with the terrors of death and the powers of darkness. He suffered all his indignities, felt and borne the weight of God's wrath. He suffered underneath that. He suffered as a criminal, basically, even though he had no sin of his own. Think of it like this. Imagine if somebody of the royal family ever went into the poorest prison when he built himself and lived in squalor. And that still doesn't even come close to describing what Christ did for his people. He suffered. He suffered greatly. He laid on his life an offering for sin and in doing that, enduring the painful, shameful, and cursed death of the cross. The cross today is seen as a piece of jewelry, but it was a shameful way to die. It was the Romans warning the world, you, you don't want to follow this person. This is the worst way you could die. It was an agonizing, shameful death. I mean, think today, how many people would like to be brought to the electric chair? But this is worse. There was no dignity in this death. It was just horrendous. And yet he suffered it. Willingly. He willingly went to the cross. See, in the cross, the world sees defeat. But by faith, believers in Jesus Christ at the cross, see victory, victory over death and hell. Question 50, and this is the last one we're looking at this evening. 
wherein consisteth no wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death. Christ's humiliation, it says, <clears throat> after his death, consisted in his being buried. And continuing in the in, in the state of the dead and under the power of death until the third day. He was dead for three days. It says then, which hath been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. Now, <clears throat> I think I'm not <laughs> the person to to fully explain that because that that phrase goes back to centuries there's been various ways of explaining it one thing it doesn't mean is that he went to hell for three days okay just he it was paid on the cross um also there's various ways of understanding hades the grave and the way i understand it but let's look at jg voss how he commented on this, it says, uh, this is J.G. Voss, this expression has been understood in various ways. Some hold that Christ literally descended into hell, not the hell of the devil and the wicked angels, but a place where the Old Testament saints were thought to be writing. There they say he preached to those spirits and opened the way for them to enter into heaven. This interpretation, which is held by the Roman Catholic Church and by some Protestants, is unsound and is based on a misunderstanding, wrong interpretation of First Peter three eighteen to twenty, some Protestants hold that the words "he descended into hell" refers to Christ's suffering on the cross. That is, that he descended into hell, not as a place, but as an experience of suffering. While this idea is doctrinally sound, it is historically unwarranted because the word translated "hell" in the Apostles' Creed is not Gehenna, the place of punishment, but Hades, the realm of death. Our Catechism teaches that the words. He descended into hell refers to Christ being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time, the word hell being understood as the realm of the power of death. So that's probably the best way to understand it. You could really translate Hades, a time's grave, depending on the context. Uh, and it's, it's kind of like the same thing with the word Sheol, and it's one of the reasons why some translations will at times translate the word Sheol, hell, and sometimes leave it untranslated because of the misunderstanding at times of hell that I suppose leaving it open to interpretation, whether it's talking about the, you know, the place of the grave. And you see this in Sheol at the end of uh, Psalm 16. Or the place of torment. Hell. So, and, and even in the context of the question, I tend to agree with J.G. Voss here that it is the realm, hell here is the realm of death. he was dead for three days. It doesn't mean, though, that hell is not a place of fiery torment. That's, that's, a, that's a different issue in case people are confused. Um, there's different Greek words that are used for hell. Gehenna is the place of fiery torment. Hades is the realm of the dead. Death. And that word really is not really making any comment on the nature of that. So, oh, oh, it's not an easy topic because people get nervous. People say, oh, you're... Yes, people who die without Christ will go to a place of fiery torment. Yes. And they will suffer for all eternity. Yes. Under the wrath of God. Yes but we're talking about particular Greek words and what they mean. And Jesus Christ, when he descended in, as the old Apostles' Creed says, descended into hell is not saying he went into the place of fiery torment for three days. He went to the realm of the dead, or he went to the grave. The grave would be an acceptable translation of Hades at times, okay? So hopefully that's a help. If, if, if you need any further 
clarification or anything else like that, please email me at radio at gmail.com. And if you've got any ideas for programs or things you'd like me to critique, I try these days to stick to certain topics, topics that are probably covered in the past, but, um, or if there's any articles or anything else you would like me to look at, again, radio at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support. Please pray for the attempt to get back to live streaming. And we'll talk to you again soon. It's been Paul Flynn.